0: That artists create works to in order to understand the world and also for the world to understand them. So there's a degree of self-revelation in all art, I think, but there's also a degree of search and curiosity in all good art.
1: Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts Charles Paley Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs.
2: With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature.
1: So let's get into today's episode. Storytelling, you know, it has this power to connect us, bring us together. It's a way of um, making change sometimes. Obviously, you've dedicated yourself for a long time to this particular story. I'm going to show the book here, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho. Uh, why this particular story? What compelled you to write this story?
0: Right, okay. Well, um, the first thing to say is storytelling it is uh, in my blood. Literally, about, I would say, five years ago, I was in St. Lucia, where my parents are from. And uh, my sister says, oh, there's somebody on the beach who says they know they knew our granddad. I never met our granddad. So I go down to the beach and I, I meet this fellow. He's probably in his mid-60s, late 60s maybe, and he says, uh, oh, yeah, Pa Danzi. yeah, he used to tell all the children ghost stories. We'd come into his compound and he'd tell us the ghost story. But we were scared, scared, scared. But every night we would come back. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know this. So I told my dad. And my dad did the most St. Lucian thing, most Caribbean thing I've ever seen him do. And I told him, that hey, do you know your dad was a storyteller? Because my dad had left St. Lucian when he was about 23. And he looked at me and he went, my father, <laughs> <laughs> my father. Uh, sort of walked away. Uh, so so like, <laughs> oh, wow. So even he didn't know. So there's a sort of, I feel there's a sort of family connection. Uh, and I can't tell the story of, you know, parking without telling you all the ins and outs of mm-hmm. how it happened and who was standing where and did I think I'd get through and, and then the traffic war I, I can never tell a straightforward tale of, yeah, I just went down the shops and I bought mm-hmm. some ice cream. Yeah. So I think... That's in me. So when I came to Sancho's story, I was really looking for um, ways to tell it that would compel me to listen to it. And the best way for me is always like person to person. You can read all sorts of stories, but the best way is person to person. So when I first wrote the monodrama based on this man's life, of course, you know, he's got an exciting life, born on a slave ship in 1729, um, orphaned by the time he was three, taken from Columbia to Greenwich to live with three spinsters uh, three years old, grows up to be a sort of pet, runs away, he gets found by the Duke of Montague uh, when he was seven years old in the park, Greenwich th- in Blackheath, ran away from the sisters because they wouldn't teach him how to read. Duke secretly gives him books. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. grows up to be a musician and a writer and an actor and painted by Gainsborough. So this colourful story it's like ping I've mm. got to tell this man's story but I did it as a sort of audience with mm. I also remember the sort of Kenneth Williams you know or the, that was probably the first one I ever saw so basically it's like somebody on stage who's really really famous some celebrities in the audience they ask him questions and he sort of regales them with his last I remember story. those they were great they were really good yeah uh, and I think they were probably more honest when they began and they became a bit more of a sort of celebrity show uh, and I thought, let me do that with him. So that was that one man show. But it's also public. It's also public. Everything's public. The painting by Gainsborough is very public. Big sort mm. of performance, almost, you know. If you look at that painting, he's got that big you know, red waistcoat and he's got his hands inside like a gentleman. He's sort of looking off like, I don't even care to look at you. Mm. He's got his hands like in there, like he doesn't do a stroke of work. And yet he's a valet, valet to the Duke of Montague. Hair is beautifully quaffered, you know, red gold braiding dance pop such a performance his letters they're a sort of performance because uh, he knew that they'd be read out loud because not many people could read in that time Mm. Uh, so they would always be read to the the family so they weren't very personal the play itself was again public performance and I thought this is the best way the sort of diary form Mm -hmm. the most private form of storytelling in a way even if it's telling your own story of what happened that day or that event. And so, yeah, there you go. Hmm.
2: Do you remember the first time you heard about um, Charles Ignatius Sancho's story? And and did it invoke anything within you? Why why this man specifically?
0: I suppose it was um, this sort of greedy uh, and, and kind of venal... Uh, selfish, vain side of me that wanted to be in a costume drama because that's what suited me. <laughs> like I'd, done, I'd done my classical training and I always loved the, the sort of European classics and wanted to play all those roles, went to the RSC, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and quite often you'd get people saying, Oh, you, you know, it's a shame because you, you're doing this role and you're doing it really well, but you wouldn't really be here, would you? Like you wouldn't have been in this time because there wouldn't be black people in this time. And it sort of irked me a little bit. Mm. Uh, and so I started digging uh, in my mid-30s into this story. And I found this amazing book by a woman called, uh, it's now a friend of mine, called Gretchen Gertziner, an American author and historian. And Gretchen wrote this book called Black England. And there's some amazing stories from the Roman period, Brit, you know, Roman Britain period. A guy called Septimius Severus. He was emperor of Rome and came here in the third century AD with his two sons and his his wife. She was he was from Libya. She was from Syria, and uh, and he came to rebuild Hadrian's Wall and do what Julius Caesar couldn't do, which sort of rule this crazy spot of you know dirt mm-hmm. in the middle of the Channel yeah. that no one could tame. <laughs> and he came to do that and um, and sort of half succeeded and half failed, in his son was a butcher and I'm like reading this story and going wow I never knew anything about this mm. and then it goes into John Blank who's one of the trumpeters for Henry VIII didn't even know there were black people in the courts and mm. they can then well obviously because Catherine of Aragon his first wife uh, got all these you know they were always trumpeters in the Spanish and the Portuguese court they just brought them along all these musicians are oh, like mm. brains is popping Elizabeth I, in that period, there was another decree by her to say, too many black people here. Oh, we've heard it before. The reason the economy is tanking is because there's too many black people here. We need to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody ended up turning up, which I always say is like African time turned weapon of self-defense. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but then but then I came across this man, and it was the portrait, in black and white, of this fellow. I was like, who is this? Is this a, a sort of... A parody like this is what a black man might look like if he had money or freedom mm. and now it turns out to be that strange story that I've just related and I thought yeah that's it so mm. that that was I would have been I'd have been about 36 37 at that point born and bred in Britain had the usual hey you know where you're from and you go Park Royal yeah which is quite a scuzzy place, actually, in northwest London. But it's does <laughs> go. the Hyde's factory is at the mat- yeah. <laughs> Park Royal. And then they go, "No, but where were you originally from? Mm. Willston Green. Where were your parents from? Mm. Yeah. you yeah. oh, Okay. So there's that sense yeah. of not, b- it's quite belonging in your mm. own country. And because I'm a child of the 70s as well, you get a lot of, um, forgive me, but this is how it was. Uh, wogs out, nigger, go home. Painted on walls, everywhere. Uh, everywhere. And, um, and it, 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 that feeling that you don't quite belong, that you're not really meant to be here, in the only country you've ever known, I mm. didn't go to St. Lucia till I was 32, uh, the only language you, ever, you speak, my parents wouldn't teach us quail, uh, which is the St. Lucian Creole, because uh, they didn't want us to have accents. And, and to be told kind of, or to, for it to be implied that you don't belong, someone like Sancho, who goes way back before the so-called Windrush, uh, generation uh, which is mid 20th century it was really comforting and empowering in a way even though he's nothing in many ways nothing like me in some ways really like me but so far back it was like well i cannot pretend now that i don't have a connection with this country mm. in, in mm. and not just about slavery not just about um the wind rush actually there's a there's a deeper story uh, that i that i began to uncover with him so Mm. way back in 1999 that probably would have been the first time I'd come across him properly yeah
2: yeah do you feel like it kind of solidified your belonging and your identity and you know there's no questioning it now even if I doubt I
0: think if we've there's a there's a uh, an African-American writer called uh, Walter Mosley Devil in the Blue Dress uh, famous for most famous for I suppose but he writes sort of thrillers but always with a black character in it and somebody once asked him, you know, why do you always write these black characters? Uh, which is like a ridiculous question. <laughs> yeah. you would, you, I don't know, you wouldn't ask I don't know, Martin Amos, why does he write white characters? <laughs> mm. just wouldn't, it occur to you, but anyway, yeah. the question was asked. And he said, well, he believes that a people, it's a lovely phrase actually, um, a, a people that don't exist in its country's literature can be said to not exist at all. Mm. I think, wow, that's really powerful. It's a really powerful thought. And so there's no Oliver Twist with a black character. There's no David Copperfield with a black character. Um, mm. And and so it seemed to me that that's what Sancho needed. It's why the novel came rather than another play or a screenplay or whatever. Although I you know, dabbled with screenplays, that it needed a kind of treatment like that, as if it was you know part of the pantheon of Jane Eyre and uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice mm. and uh, Tom Jones and not the singer they. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, you know, Vanity Fair needed that treatment and his life lent itself to that. It's a very colourful, very colourful life and and, and a compromised life. Not a perfect hero, which is my favourite kind of hero or heroine. You know, somebody who's as flawed as I am, maybe more so to the the, the, the person looking at their lives, but still did heroic things because he sold slave goods, no doubt about it. He had a shop right next to Downing Street. Right, mm. on Charles Street, now called King Charles Street. It's got the foreign, foreign and Commonwealth Office on the corner and then the next street along is Downing Street. And he had a shop there. So he's not he would have been selling vegetables, sure. He would have been selling sort of, you know, the blue powder that they use for washing. But he would not have been able to avoid selling coffee or uh, tobacco or sugar. Mm. So the the fact that he had a shop, though, allowed him to vote. Mm. So you could see, oh, okay, I'm not sure that he would have... Uh, thought, well, that's my excuse, but you can certainly say, well, here are the circumstances, but he did something with it, but still flawed, you know?
2: Hmm. Am I right in thinking he was the first black man to vote as well?
0: Well, we always have to couch it. The historians have taught me this, I suppose. You also couch these things in terms of... um, as far as we know, he is the first man of African descent to vote in a British parliamentary election. Doesn't trip off the tongue as much as first black man to vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then you're out. Then you've got to do the whole spiel. Yeah, the yeah, and also, history is weird, you know? History is weird. People think it's fixed and it's not fixed. It's like, look, you. if somebody said to me, This is your mum, like, I've never met my mum, they go, Here are her circumstances came from St. Lucia when she was in her early 20s, had five kids in five years, and then uh, lived above a shop in Wilston Green, uh, eventually got herself a, a council house in Kensal Rice, bought it, all the kids lived there, they all grew up to do great things, and she went back to St. Lucia. Like, Well, yeah, okay, that's her basic story. It tells you nothing about her personality, mm-hmm. Yeah. nothing about her. But the other thing is, somebody will then go, yeah, but didn't you know that she used to dance at this dance hall, and she was a famous... A ballroom dancer. Oh, didn't you know that she... And all this information... None of that's true, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mum would kill me if, I, if I <laughs> making up stuff about her. Um, but, but, but all of this information that you think is fixed is not fixed, mm-hmm. even for our own families, what I'm trying to say. Like my granddad, you know. Yeah. Fixed story about... Uh, um, his name was actually Joseph Danzy. So we should be Danzy's, but we chose us because he went yeah. to Martinique. Ah, uh, French. Mm. Swap the names around. Yeah. so hence I'm Patterson Joseph instead of Patterson Danzy. Should have been quite a, mm. yeah. As a, as a support, yeah. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, sort of crooner. Right. Patterson Danzy. <laughs> Start spreading the news. Yeah, that's
2: a Gatsby wearing. A that Gatsby is hat yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> he,
0: Patterson Danzy would definitely be able to pull this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, all these stories keep popping up. It's like i finished writing the book, and then these amazing young people down at the New College of the Humanities who have this. Database and a wonderful, actually interactive. If you just look at their website, the New College of the Humanities website, and you see what they they're calling it, Black London, and it's basically a database where you can just all see where all Sancho's letters went, and you could ping know, ping wow. on them and see who that person was, where he lived, where he moved. It's an amazing interactive thing. Anyway, they discovered these smarty pantses, <laughs> uh, two supposedly two new. I think it's only one though, but two new Sancho kids. Oh, like an God. elder son that I'd never known about. But the oh. book is already printed. Mm. So i was yeah. like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. how, how amazing <laughs> of you yeah. Yeah. have done that? Yeah. Well, well, well done, that. kids. And so I've had to write a little coda, as you'll see at the back okay, of the book, yeah. sort of, you know, yeah, um, and just to go, by the way, history is very fluid. Yeah. Yeah. It's evolving go, continuously. Yeah, exactly. But I'm yeah. glad of it because I've learned things about these kids, mm. uh, especially the youngest, that, that have, has really pleased me.
2: Um, but even to do, you know, to be able to write a book must have taken an incredible amount of research. I mean, you know, it's kind of like a semi-autobiographical novel essentially and I don't know if I could write something like that on Giles who I know personally, let alone somebody that lived.
0: I think you so could long give it ago. a go there. I
2: think you <laughs> give it a go, but it would probably be embellished with some of my own made-up yeah.
0: stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- th- actually, that's part of the trick part of the trick is you put yourself in the shoes of somebody that you get to know mm. through maybe a threadbare archive, which is largely what we have for Sancho. Very little mm. is written on him. And then you extrapolate from that what it would have been like looking at other people around him
1: mm. saying,
0: well, the lives of people like him were a bit like this. So Sancho must have gone through some of this. Mm. What would it have been like to be a three year old um, living in a country that is a, has a different language? Well, My quail was taken away from me when I was three. I didn't find out till I was 33. But I've always been obsessed with language Mm. and speech and what something means when somebody says it, but what it also means by the way they say it. Mm. I've always been a bit like that. Like, you've said something to me, but what you're saying doesn't match what I see in your eyes or what I hear in your your tone. You become sort of hypersensitive, which he clearly is. And also a sponge for accents, a sponge for imitation, a sponge... for learning, because you feel the loss. So that's autobiographical in some Mm. ways, even though that's Sancho's story in the novel, it's also my story. Mm. The fact that he says things like, um, uh, he says right at the beginning, because it's written for his son who's just been born, and he knows he's not going to see him as an adult because he's already very ill with the gout that's going to kill him. And so he says um, at one point, you know, he's collating these diaries for his son, and he says, know thy father and forgive him. And you think, wow, I wonder what you've got to f- be forgiven for. But it reminds me, and not that he was asking for forgiveness, of when I was about 14. And my dad and I, I've got, got loads of siblings, but for some reason at that period, I was just watching telly with him quite a lot, just me and him. And I remember him switching it off one day and just going, let me tell you about, and he would tell me these stories about his youth in St. Lucia. Oh, wow. like these adventure stories, because he lived a lot up in sort of country. He was quite a feral kid, I think. And, uh, you know, about you know having to wrestle with dogs and, you know, the owners of dogs who bought bits of the beach and they wouldn't let the boys go on it. So he had to challenge him, you know, uh, fishing, how he used to know exactly the right spots to dive for lobster. And no one else could would know where it was, but he was really good at finding it. He could probably find it today, he thought, and he hadn't lived in St. Lucia for about 30 years at this point. Mm. And then he talked about... Um, you know, seeing the John Wayne films and the other cowboy films, and how they used to imitate the fights and, <laughs> all, that and all that. And my mum would come back from working in the hospital uh, and go, uh, "You know, Letty boy go to bed," because it would be a school night, so she yeah. would sort of hustle me off to bed. I don't think at fourteen, I, I don't think I thought I, I knew what he was doing. It's only I suppose when I had a son, it really crystallised for me. Oh, he was trying to tell me who he is. Mm. He was just trying to tell me who he is because that's dad with all his flaws and living this life in, in 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 Kensal Rise, you know, and having this dream. I remember him saying to him, oh, I want to do what I really want to do is have a fish farm. I'd like to have a fish farm. Mm-hmm. He's telling this 14 year old boy that yeah, he worked as a plasterer for Brent council. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but that is partly in the book. So so there is a bit, it was absolutely well intuited, a bit of biography mm. in this I wonder if someone like Hilary Mantel, the great Hilary Mantel, who wrote the book on um, Thomas uh, uh, Cromwell, um, Wolf Hall, if there's a bit of what she knows about her father or a bit of what she knows about her own life in it somewhere. I guess people who know her well or whether she's spoken about it. But you can't tell the story of another human being without going, oh, that reminds me of something. And it humanizes it, Mm. In an academic way now, because I've been doing this for 20-odd years, there is a, um, there's a sort of legitimised phrase for it, and it comes from a, an American, another American um, uh, writer and historian called Saidiya Hartman, uh, and she wrote this piece called Venus in Two Acts. So it's like looking at an iconic figure and saying, well, we don't know anything about her, but people have projected what they want on her, but actually you could find out more about a character if you um look around them and build their story up so she calls this uh she calls it critical fabulation wow what a word right it's a proper american word for it right critical fabulation so it means you're you're critically looking at the archive and looking around the archive and the history of say a girl growing up in the ghetto in 1920s america in harlem somebody would come in usually a white guy and would just go oh living in poverty and squalor dressed filthily three kids by different men in prostitution and Mm. that's in the record so this woman who barely has a name that's all that's known of her and you go what an awful life whereas if you knew that she would likely have come from the south that she would have had a quite a rural uh, upbringing quite basic, but quite rural. That when she came into town, she would probably have been quite innocent and she could have been drawn into prostitution either out of necessity or or because she was too innocent to know what she was getting into. Then you start to build a picture and a character and a story that makes your heart bleed a little bit rather than just going, oh gosh, yeah, she's in this terrible condition. So critical fabulation is not making up stuff. It's looking around the circumstances of somebody's life and saying the likelihood is this is what they had to go through. I think it's mm-hmm. a really um, sort of empathetic way of looking at all history. Mm. Well,
1: it really leads me on to my next question, which is about like storytelling and being empathetic and whether that is also a big part of your performing and your acting work. Like, do you think you need to be a great, to be a great actor, you need to have a level of empathy and, and compassion?
0: Yeah, I think we all say the sort of orthodoxy, I suppose, of drama training is always don't judge your characters, don't judge them, let the audience judge them. It's hard sometimes to do if you're you know, playing Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've seen great performances, you know, where people have, have humanised him, and I don't mean to make him empathetic, but you, unfortunately, as the performer, have to be inside that person's mind and soul. And actually... We're all the hero and heroine of our own stories, aren't we? Like, we see ourselves as, mm. uh, you know, reasonably good. We see ourselves as 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 wanting to do the best. Uh, very few of us, unless we have some sort of problem, um, emotional problems, see ourselves as villain and enjoy mm. the villainous side of us. We're defending something. Mm. You know, when uh, I used to uh, hang around with people who had a, a, a sort of more of a criminal mindset Uh, the 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 justification is these are rich people yeah whether it's a shop or whether it's somebody's house these Mm. are people with more than much more than i have much more than they probably need they probably won't miss it Mm. they'll probably be able to replace it and in some ways of course they're right but that's not morally correct Mm. so if you're playing that character You've got to be in the place where you're going, this is wh-. I was mm. watching The Gold the other day, which is a fantastic show the BBC do about the Brinks map. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I really yeah. loved yeah. it. And many, many layers of it I loved. But these working class boys were like, why the hell shouldn't I get it as well?
2: Mm.
0: There's, a, there's a glass ceiling for us. And if we can break through it and be at the top, they'll still come after us, but at least we'll have gotten through. And I kind of love that. It made my heart mm. sing, that that show, because it wasn't just about cops and robbers. Mm. And hey, these fantastic villains and you know celebrating gangsterism—it wasn't. It was just working-class people, men and women, trying to get above. And you've got to play them as if they're heroes. Mm. You can't, and you've got to think of them as being heroic, as opposed to eh, I'm, a, I'm a villain and I'm trying to, because that's just conflict, yeah. really. Mm. You do that in comedy. In comedy, mm. you can do that, but not really. In, I mean, I'm thinking about uh, immediately think about Alan Johnson, and I think, do I, did I play him with any? degree of empathy. No, no, it is impossible. It is impossible because he had no human side or a soul.
2: Well, I mean, that was it's a comedy. Empty hearted.
0: He did Tai Chi us. as well, but though, didn't he? hilarious. He did Tai so. Chi, but as quickly as he possibly Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, maybe if you had played him with more empathy, it wouldn't have... Wouldn't have panned out as it did no so no exactly <laughs> yeah. he
0: would have been the, the absolute villain that he's loved for being
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> but i was thinking like um yeah the idea around cultivating empathy and stuff and also we live in a world that feels less empathetic you know we we you know we see this online on a daily basis and i wonder if that affects how we're telling stories as well you know we maybe storytelling isn't what it used to be. I mean, it's great to see this in a book form, but we don't necessarily, that's not celebrated as much maybe these Mm. days.
0: No, I think that's true. I think we're very judgmental of people generally, um, uh, and unforgiving, uh, and Mm. two-dimensional, and we make snap uh, conclusions about who everybody is. And it seems to be a sort of off-the-shelf Amateur psychology that we use on everybody yeah. Don't really sit and talk And think about mm-hmm. what somebody's Feeling, they're either, they're angry They're militant, they're right wing They're left wing, you know, we just box And box and box people up mm-hmm. and, um, and I think that's Not going to change For a very long time Or until there is a, a sort of crisis mm-hmm. I think the pandemic Was helpful in many ways for many of us Because it made us realise How much we loved people how much we needed people, um, and how uh, how sort of little help there was when there weren't when there wasn't other people around for our own sort of mental state. Mm. Um and that was good for a while. It was a bit um a sort of fantasy blitz spirit thing. Yeah. Everybody was all jolly and everybody was lovely with each other, I'm sure they weren't because <laughs> they had laws yeah. about, you know, people mm. um nicking stuff and selling things on the side were quite draconian laws Mm. about all that, because that was also happening because human beings are human beings. Yeah. But I think that if we don't do that, then we're doomed really in the long run. We, this is well known, you know, we don't have claws. We can't run very fast. We don't have massive teeth or super strength. We survived because we teamed up. We have the Mm. intellect to understand that even though I don't like you, even though I don't want to you know, hang around with you all the time, when the thing's coming at us, we need to gang up and cooperate. That's the way we're going to survive in the basic sense. And then we also find that we love it and it's good for us. It's good for our hearts and it's good for our minds. And those people who get depressed are often people who lack community or have community broken away from them. Um, And so, yeah, I think just as a human survival thing, it is... It's essential that we have it, but I don't think we're in that place right now. Mm. I don't think we're in that um, that space in our evolution right now. I think I think we're separating ourselves out. You see it nationally, and obviously then you see it within nations,
2: Mm.
0: becoming more and more distilled from each other, and that's that's that is a recipe for disaster. I mean, there's that old biblical phrase, isn't it? Like it's not good for man. Somebody said they, they were wouldn't have mm. been then. But they, didn't <laughs> they didn't appear exist. in this phrase. Yeah,
2: they came about in the 1900s. I think, I think didn't so. they? <laughs> they were invented in the yeah, night, yeah, yeah. Discovered back <laughs> when things were black and white. Still,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's not good for, for man or a person to be alone. Um, no man is an island. Mm. Which is sort of a later, I think, John Donne poem. But look, why is that? Because we aren't good at figuring out even what we think when we're on our own. Mm because we're in our own little echo chamber. The times that I've been my least functional are times when I've been isolated in some way. It might be a job I'm doing where I'm not really seeing anybody and I'm there for months. Mm. It might be, you know, a moment when I'm not well and I have to be on my own for a while. You go rattling around in your own headspace and you end up with all sorts of crazy notions. Mm. And as soon as you speak them out loud, do you realise how bonkers they were? Everybody hates me. Nobody really wants to be (laughs) there. No, you were ill or you were away. Everybody's busy or we didn't even know that you, we thought you were, we didn't even know you were around, you know. Mm. All of those things. So, yeah, it's yeah. true.
2: But well, we're try. I think we're tribal creatures, aren't we? And and that, like, like you say, that can. Be a good thing in some ways because we are naturally meant to be with others. But I guess that that might actually be where that us versus them mentality comes from. Because, Mm. you know, once someone's been ostracized from the tribe in order to sort of fit in and and remain in the tribe, you kind of have to join in with the masses. You see it on social media and Twitter and and it's kind of like public shaming Mm. where if someone's out of the tribe, you know, they've done something wrong. Or, you know, going back to what you were saying about characters and stories as well, Mm. you just presume, well, oh, they were just obviously a bad person or they were this or that. And you make presumptions based off of your beliefs and the way that you see the world. And then you jump in and start attacking and stuff. It's all very, everybody sees things very black and white um, as like a safety mechanism, I guess.
0: I think that's really true, you know. And going back to answering your question, actually, about... um, how you tell stories in that way and why we don't I don't know why we don't except for what we talked about but I I prefer to look at somebody in their time and understand the context of the time that they're in Mm. and then I can start to look at the decisions that they make because otherwise you end up going "Oh, these all these people were all these people were fools like well that's only 50 60 years ago we haven't evolved so fast that we're not the same as them, we just know yeah. more things than they did so I'm going to be less sexist than my father but I'm not going to be less sexist than my son who will probably have to pull me up mm-hmm. at some point about things I've said flippantly uh, and his son will do the same, his daughter will do the same for him we're in a mm-hmm. constant state of evolution so we look at someone like Sancho a couple of hundred years 300 more years ago and you. I think you've got to judge him in his time and it's not to make an excuse but it's to say what did people generally know like most people didn't even know what was happening in africa mm. they thought mm. africa was this wild savage place because those were the words being used about africans by people who had the power to write about them and they were all men and they were all men who were pretty much involved in the slave trade in one uh, way or another. It was like lobbyists writing about, you know, sugar, saying how wonderful sugar is mm. and how good the trade is. Of course they're going to write, it was fantastic in the in the in Africa, we rescued them from heathen religions and child sacrifice and uh, cannibalism and living, you know, disgusting lives. We've rescued them and civilized them. Uh, and so the people in, in Sancho's time, that's what they largely believed, unless they'd either witnessed it happening, what was happening in Africa, or they'd gone to the Caribbean and seen how these Africans were being treated. And then gradually, and it was only gradually, these stories started to come out. um, And it was women who first started going, nope, we're no no longer going to take sugar. We're no longer going to eat your cocoa. Mm. We're going to... Boycott this until you do something about the slave trade, mm. and it was Quaker women, sort um, mm. of religious group.
2: So, are you saying that women are more empathetic? <laughs> uh,
0: I'm saying those women. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Quaker. <laughs> I can't take that credit.
0: <laughs> but that's it. I mean, it's like that. That's what you got to do. I think you got to get inside the mindset mm. of the person that you're trying to tell the story of, and be as. Um, yes, empathetic to them in their time and not judge them by your own 21st century standards. That's not easy to do. Mm. I don't mean you you can't say, well, that was not right. But you have to understand what they knew rather than think Mm. that they're like you and they just simply chose to do that. Mm. You know, the sweatshop stories, you know, with whatever I'm wearing, uh, I I hope it, it is as ethically sourced as possible. But I don't know where John Lewis sources all their stuff. I mm-hmm. don't know where Mark Spencer s- source all their stuff. I don't know where the Australian boot company um, source their leather. I don't know how this works. I-, I can only sort of presume because they're not massively known for exploitation of children around the world, that they're not the worst companies. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that I'm innocent in it. Suppose if I went out of my way to find out, and also there's less and less excuse now for us not knowing. Of mm-hmm. course, yeah. Um, but back in the day, I mean, who knew what? Who was? Any information you'd get is from the newspaper, mm. which uh, you know again is heavily curated. Um, and and that's the thing about history generally. You know, the history that's been handed down to us is largely curated, but who's curating it? That's the I'm not being insane. As a a little fly, yeah, don't you see? (laughs) (laughs) A little fairy with wings. Yes, yes, Patterson. (laughs) (laughs) Tinkerbell. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the thing. You know, it's like there are stories out there that haven't been told. Mm. You know, there are transgender stories uh, and third gender, if you you like, stories that that are centuries old. We know nothing about them you look at people have said and i think this is true um that um from what i fragments i've read that that various genders were recognized in um the native american communities so that's nothing new but it seems mm. like some new thing that's happened mm. uh, and now all everybody's all sort of up in arms ab- about it but to be honest with you, it's a history that hasn't been told. So we've had no time to even metabolize it. Mm. And I'd like to stay out of all arguments for another 30 years. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it's settled a bit. The gay story, there's no, I know very little. There's more and more books coming out now of gay history. It's like, mm. well, you almost think it's like a brand new thing mm-hmm. that was invented in the 20th century, you know. Um, or maybe the end of the 19th, Oscar Wilde was the first gay person ever, you know. And then you look at, um, You know, obviously, the stories of Chinese people here in Britain, uh, people from the Middle East, um, Arabs here. um, They obviously goes way back to any sort of sailing, navigation uh, nation will have had all of these people, in their in part of their history, some Mm. in some way. And I'm seeing it more archive I'm looking at, all over Europe in particular. Uh, Obviously, African stories, not just of slavery, but pre-colonial and um and even within the colonial period, all sorts of interesting stories that are not just to do with uh slavery um and, and women's stories mm. which are like, there's going to be a massive amount now coming out more and more mm. of these stories because they just haven't been told yeah,
2: I mean, it's great that they're all sort of coming out now, but it does make you think. Also, in terms of what we're teaching children in schools as well, uh-huh. um, because, I mean, I I was a primary school teacher formerly as well at one stage in my life, and, you know, you don't really have much control over what you teach. You have to just cover the areas of the curriculum, so it's not really teacher's fault, but within the curriculum you study slavery and that's it. That's all you learn about the history of all the different cultures in the United Kingdom. You don't learn about anything else, uh-huh. and... Yeah, it makes it does make you wonder, you know, should we be doing more to be educating children not just about, you know, different cultures but gender inequality and everything that you were just saying, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great that you have written your book. Um it'll be it would have been great if more people already knew about Ch- uh, Charles Ignatius Sancho because yeah. I mean I for one I had never heard of him before before your book so for me it was great because I actually personally love love a period novel oh, good, <laughs> good. I'm, I'm into all of the Jane Austen novels and um, yeah all that stuff, stuff, the Brontes and stuff so right up my street.
0: <laughs> I'm really gratified to hear that you know because it's the first thing you can talk about politics and all the, all the rest of it mm. but as I say the first I say it in the preface like so it's an entertainment this is an entertainment. I want it to be like Oliver Twist and David Copperfield. I don't want you to feel like you're, you're going to get a history lesson here. It'll be on the side. You'll get some history, but that's not what it's about. And, it, and, it, and I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, I think there's a um, there's a there's a lack of it just simply because there's not been as much sort of interest in it, and uh, the compulsion to tell these stories is higher now than it's mm-hmm. been for a long time. Uh, and that might fade. I've seen tides of these things come and go. So it'd be great if whilst there is a de- degree of uh, willingness to to tell wider stories uh of of other communities that aren't just european that we would and, and male mm. that we would that we would have those stories pouring in naturally into our curriculum for kids um as well and, mm. and, and and you know this idea which i just heard recently of the fear that you're teaching kids to be racist by telling kids about racism it's like well. I don't think that's true because mm. my first my first um, encounter with racism was f- at four and a half. So mm. I don't think you can be too young to learn about it because these were other four, five-year-olds, six-year-olds who were doing it to me who were learning it from their parents because yeah, kids catch yeah, a exactly. heck of a lot from their parents. By the time they get to school, they've got a whole bunch of moral mm. um, sort of... Um, constructions in their head mm. and 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 it might it there might be that they're quite xenophobic not because they were naturally born that way but because they have already imbibed it at home mm. um and uh you've seen four-year-olds they're, they're quite formed as personalities and characters that's a really good time actually mm. to start putting in some other input so yeah. if it's as long as it's done appropriately and it's not done indulgently uh and there's a sort of balance of um uh it's particularly, obviously, I'm just looking at black history, of course, but we could talk about any sort of subject, particularly gender issues. That you say, here's a celebration of our multiculturalism, and here's another story about it that's a bit negative, but here we go. Let's talk mm. about this as well. So, it's not just if we think about black people, it's got to be of a sort of negative,
2: mm.
0: awful thing. There are sort of kings and queens and all sorts of other kingdoms we can talk about pre-colonial history, talk about colonial history and then talk about the triumphs post the colonial uh, period and there are plenty of them. There's a wonderful book by the way for 9 to 12 year olds, oh, a yeah. book series uh, by JT Williams Joanna and uh, she came to see my one man show in Wilson's Music musical so I'm claiming some of this <laughs> but she basically wrote a series of books um, and the second one's about to come out about uh, Sancho's youngest daughter, oh, cool. um, who he calls Betsy. I always call her Betsy, but Lizzie, Elizabeth. Lizzie uh, Sancho and a lady called Dido Elizabeth Bell who lived up in um, Kenwood House in Hampstead Heath with her great-uncle, who was the Lord Chief Justice. But she was of mixed heritage. Her, her mother was a um, uh, possibly an enslaved um, woman, black woman, in uh, the Caribbean, and her father was a, a naval uh, sea captain so uh he he has this daughter and brings her to kenwood house when she's very young i think six or seven years old there's a beautiful portrait um by a guy called murray i think of her and her her cousin really beautiful really Mm -hmm. beautifully done and dido elizabeth bell and uh, betsy get together or lizzie get together and they solve mysteries in 18th century london so you get a bit of education as well because just little sidebars about how do you send a. How do you send a letter in 18th century mm. London where well, you had to put a seal on it? And what was a seal made of? It was made of wax. And was there a post office? And no, there was. There were these, you know, post horses that would take things. And so mm. ni- nice sort of bits of side information. And uh, what were women allowed to do in these days? You know? um, uh, and it's called Lizzie and Bell. It's called the Lizzie and Bell Mysteries. Oh, great. Uh, Bell, B-L-L-E. Uh And the second one's coming out. Uh, this year I think Mm, Well,
2: that's great any teachers or parents listening yeah uh, yeah Yeah, absolutely
1: that's That's brilliant
2: that's great yeah because I think literature is a great way again of of introducing topics in a really palatable way for children and and I know a lot of schools have their their, term book that they'll use and that will feed into all the different areas of the curriculum and you know it might be maths like oh how many I don't know, carrier pigeons. <laughs> so so huge. God, you can tell it's been a while since I've been a teacher.
0: <laughs> yeah. Carry a long time. Really carrier, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, just talk about the story form, you know. Uh, for me, there's the purest way, uh, and I don't mean to do myself out of a job as an actor, but the purest way to tell a story, as far as I'm concerned, is me alone in a room or someone alone in the room with a book. Because these signs on a page, as long as you can decipher them, become pictures in your head. And those pictures are absolutely yours. They're completely and utterly unique. No one else has had the picture. You can talk about Jane Eyre and you can watch um, Pride and Prejudice uh, and you can see Colin Firth (laughs) and Jennifer L. But actually, if before that you had just read the book, that picture mm. is absolutely solidly in your head and cannot be shifted. I, I read Jane Eyre before I ever saw a mm. version of it, and I've seen some good yeah. versions of it. But the picture that's in my head of Mr. Rochester, the picture that's in my head of Jane, is really real. And it's I can see them. And I can see Grace Poole and that fire. Mm. Uh, it's really strong in my head. Yeah. And the first time that hit me, it was about 13, and I picked up... Um, the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. I don't know if it was part of the course or whatever. I don't know. I happened to pick it up. I was about 13. And I read. I would read since I was a tiny kid because my sisters would force me to play school with them. So I could oh. always read, even though <laughs> I hated school and all that. But I had a magical experience because I pick up this book, and I'm quite a slow reader, so I, I stayed with it for days. But I could not put that book down. I loved mm. every moment of it. And I remember... You know, eating at the dinner table. You know, kind of trying to wield my spoon and fork, and, and still try and read it. I remember walking along the road, you know, reading oh. this thing, mm-hmm. and I'm transported from Wilsdon Green, Northwest London, transported mm. to—I'd uh, never been been out of London by that point. Never been out of London at thirteen. That point, no. I'd never seen the river. Oh wow! Hadn't seen the river yet, and there I am. Got up to—I think they go up to Scotland or whatever—and they go into this. The wardrobe and the fur coats, and the feel of fur coats, and going through that, and then seeing, even though it's summer, snow and it's night, and a lamppost, and a path, and a man who looks like a strange sort of fawn creature, half man, half fawn, Mr. Tumnus with his shopping. And I can see it's like a clear picture, like I made yeah. the movie in my head. And I can't think but that that is the purest form of storytelling no one's in the way it's just view mm. your imagination as long as you can understand the words
2: mm.
0: and then the next best is whispered in your ear like on an audible book or audio book, mm. then or ra- on the radio because again yes there's now character in it the person's now telling you how they feel about everything they're saying so it's you know they're giving you a bit of help but it's still pictures in your own head mm. um and, and i i think it's magical it and then, as soon as you start to see the person, like they're sitting there reading it in front of you, then that's it becomes a completely different performance. But the most intimate to me is the written word, with nothing else but your brain going, "What is that? What does Fawn? What does a Fawn look like? What is a Oh, what does Snow look What does a White Witch look like? What does Aslan look like? Imagine the size of that lion.
2: Mm. God, how
0: frightening that must be, and also how comforting. And yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, for me, it's magic. Yeah. yeah, it's magic.
2: Yeah, I mean, they sh- they say the best form of storytelling is show, don't tell, mm-hmm. and I think that's true of all art forms, really, as well, like physical yeah. art and music and poetry as well. Show, show someone, make you know, give someone that feeling rather than just telling them what's happening.
0: I think that's true, especially of uh, th- things like Shakespeare, for example. Who I love. Why do I love Shakespeare? Was it because I was told to love Shakespeare? I don't think it was. Because the first time I ever even, as far as I know, properly heard it, I was speaking it out loud myself in my bedroom. Oh, wow. So I was about 14 by this point. Um, And I'd never been to the theatre. And I remember a mate of mine, Tony Leons, had decided... And he could really do great imitations of people. Actually, he could do imitations of people doing imitations of people. <laughs> he, he was really good at doing uh, Lenny Henry doing David Bellamy, who was this TV. Um, oh, I remember that. TV. I remember him doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 This TV uh, sort of botanist. Yeah. Very sort of distinctive. Right. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. there, there was a uh, great uh, thing that Tony could do. Like, wow. And then Tony said, oh, I, I'm going to join the National Youth Theatre. I'm going to audition for the National Youth Theatre. And I didn't even heard about what this thing was. And remember, I, I, I'm quite, I'm, this is Harlesden now, we went to, sh- went to school, It's quite a run-down area, in, in, even at that time, not now actually, it's sort of getting more sort of gentrified as it were. But um, uh, when I wasn't bunking off school, which I did a lot, this horrible boys school, I, I, I remember thinking, well if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it as well. Mm. So I, would do, I, I said to the history teacher who also did drama, I didn't take theatre, why would I take theatre studies? I said to her, I need to audition for the National Youth Theatre. And she went, oh, well, then you just do this. Mm. And she threw literally like across the table, The Merchant of Venice and uh, The Jabberwocky, a series of Lewis Carroll things. And I found The Jabberwocky, which I really love. And then then this book about roundheads and cavaliers. Don't ask. (laughs) Bad, bad idea. But I remember... The Jabberwocky already was magical because I'm picking this up and I'm going so I'm a mumbler, right? What's your name, person? What? <laughs> person. Pat Pearson. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, when you're shy and then somebody goes, Can you speak up? It's like yeah. the worst thing in the world, yeah. No. So that's, that's who I was. Um, and I had that horrible T in the middle of my name as well. Like, I'm not growing up in an area where people go, Patterson, you know? yeah. <laughs> so you have to step up if you're gonna do that, so, yeah. Person, yeah. Person, 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 <laughs> Miss person, Miss person, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I've been picking up this book and I'm thinking, Okay, so I'm in my bedroom and was in Hull in Kenilworth and I and I open this book up, The Merchant of Venice. And, oh, sorry. The Jabberwocky was amazing because it, it's like it's it's nonsense language, right? It's like made up stuff.
2: Mm.
0: And I didn't really know that it was made up. <laughs> I just thought these are words I don't know, but they seem to be really descriptive. It mm. um, brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borrow groves and mome outgrabe. Wow. And I could I imagine, remember. yeah, and I could imagine <laughs> what they might have meant. Um... He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time, the manxum foe he sought. So rested he by a tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And oh. as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgai wood and burbled as it came.
2: I think you should, you should have a contract with Audible, that,
1: that was wonderful. <laughs> I'd listen to that. I, I, I feel
0: like I, I could listen to you doing stories. This is magical. Could you imagine? <laughs> 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 Suddenly going it was brilliant and there's like magic in my mouth, man. It's like honey in my mouth. And then and then I pick up the Merchant of Venice and I open it up. Again, I've never seen Shakespeare and and I don't know what to do except read it out loud, because that's what you're meant to do, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a play, so it's meant to be heard, right. So I open this book. I remember lying on my bed and going In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me, you say it wearies you. But how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff tis made of, whereof it is born, I am to learn. And such a want wit sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. And I remember going, and I still feel it now, that kind of,
2: I got that. Mm.
0: I got that. And that was off. I just read the whole thing in that one session, couple of hours And felt Shylock's pain, loved his sarcasm. And I chose that speech. Signor Antonio, many a time and oft in the Rialto, you have rated me about my monies and my usances. Still have I borne it with a patient shrug, for sufferance is the badge of all our tribe. And just those words made me feel connected to him. Mm. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine. And all for that which is mine own. Well, then, it now appears you need my help. Go to, then you come to me and you say, Shylock, we would have monies. You say so. You. I I mean, the fact that he's going, you, like, he's going to, he's about, I can feel he's about to insult him. Mm. And I think I could never do that. I never say to somebody, oh, you call me this and you call me that, and now you want me to do this for you. Oh, yeah. You know? And I've seen, as I said, you could see them up on the walls, all these insults. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, spit upon me, all of that stuff I knew. And that anger, that rage channeled into language, boy, so powerful. So powerful to know that you can wield a sword that isn't a physical sword, that is mm. verbal. Mm. And it changed the way I it actually even changed my behavior at school. Because I knew I had a brain and even though I wouldn't articulate stuff, I I had it up going on. So I never fought a battle after that. I never fought a physical battle. I'm going to a boys' school, quite a rough one. Mm. I never had to fight a battle after that. It was all verbal. The only thing wow. I needed to do was just verbal. And it's because of that. You call me a misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gown. What should I say to you? Should I not say, hath a dog money? Is it possible? A cur can lend 3,000 ducats, or shall I bend low? And in a bondsman's key with bated breath and Whispering humbleness, say this, fair sir. You spit on me on Wednesday last. You spurned me such a day. Another time you called me dog, and for these courtesies, I'll lend you thus much monies. The sarcasms, like mm. heavy, but witty, yeah. in particular. And I think I've always known from then that that's the way you can do it. That's the way you can fight your corner, know this language, have control over this language. Um, and even though I didn't become an actor, didn't get in. Because my terrible shyness. Um, mm. Why do you want to join the National Youth Theatre? Because i This person. <laughs> yeah, I literally went to this guy, lovely guy, probably a lovely guy. I went, because I like meeting people. Oh. Yeah, no, I, I, we say ah, oh, but he yeah, just went, well, you're going to get eaten alive. And <laughs> boys yeah, boys and girls. Aww. Now no, that you Merchant of Venice. <laughs> it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's so funny, though, it was after yeah. I'd auditioned, just after I'd done my bit. Mm. So I felt like that was it, and I don't think I did a bad job of it. I couldn't. I mean, it's very short uh, and again shy, but I did. I executed those quite boldly. But I literally think he looked at me, and that's that thing about bias in some ways. He's looking at this kid who's not Mm. giving him eye contact. If anybody's worked with kids from urban settings, eye contact is a provocation. Mm. You know, you got to know who you're looking at because if I'm I had this when I started when I directed Romeo and Juliet in Harlston. Uh this would have been 2005 uh, four and five yeah I went we were doing Romeo and Juliet and one of these kids wonderful actor Adrian wouldn't look Lord Capulet Juliet's dad in the eye and Paris the character he's playing is the apple of this guy's eye like he's gonna marry Juliet before Romeo comes and messes it up and he said um oh what do you mean? It's like, well, you're not looking him in the eye. You're not looking Lord Capulet in the eye. You're doing a great job acting it, but you, you keep sort of like, if we're standing there, you keep sort of doing things like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we did it again and again. He was sort of standing out, sort of looking away. But that's how people talk to each other in Harlesden. Mm. So you don't just see two boys going, yeah, so how are you? Are you doing good? Mm. Yeah, I'm doing good. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing this. What are you doing? Yeah, this and that. Yeah, That's how you do. You deflect and you look around. You don't confront. And he said. Eventually, oh, yeah, yeah, man, man and man don't look each other in the eye in Arlston. So that's why a man is gay or something, you know, or they want to fight you. Anytime you confront anybody like that is when, when you're, you're weird, you have been weird with them or you're wanting to fight them. Like, how do you do an interview? And how does the person behind the desk, especially if they're not from that environment, interpret your physicality? body language of course they're interpreting it as um evasive as unsure as insecure as it that's not the person you're going to give the job to you're going to give the job to the nice boy who's sitting there going yes i would love to yeah. join your firm because mm. i think it would be a really wonderful opportunity for me mm. but a kid who can do that is going to get the job a kid who can't do that it's very likely because of the, the the lack of experience i suppose behind the table to get the job I can't even see you. I don't even know what you mean. I don't know what you're thinking. Um, you don't make me feel comfortable. Um, mm. So that other kid's going to get it. It's a very pow- It was a very powerful experience.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, do you ever think, because it sounds like the, the whole experience just completely changed the course of your whole life, really. Yeah. You know, Shakespeare and, and you know... I don't, I personally, I was introduced to Shakespeare around the same sort of time and I did not have the same uh-huh. <laughs> experience as you yeah. did. I remember... I, mean, I thought
1: I was waiting for you to do your renditions... Well, uh, well, we've yeah, like, yeah. we spoke We're about Shakespeare
2: the other day, <laughs> didn't we? And I was saying because one of Giles' Charles's oldest son is doing his GCSEs. On, He's doing Macbeth. Macbeth, yeah. oh, great, yeah. One. It's a great yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, it's a good uh, one. Uh, it's
0: also quite short, which is yeah, yeah. <laughs> merciful. Really, one, tell
2: that to fifteen-year-old Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it
0: is. No, it's a short it's, Hey, you know. You, yeah, yeah, come on, Hamlet. You know, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and also it's a, one of the simplest languages. It's a bit of mythology, mm. but it's not covered yeah. in mythology. Yeah, it's simple. Yeah. I, it's gory I, I as well, prefer, so it's quite so. good. I'm it's like, it's quite fun. And it's a thriller, yeah. It's yeah. a yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I, The only thing I remember about it, and I was saying this to Eli as a bit of advice, you mm. know, <laughs> as his helper.
1: Yeah. I was like, don't listen to her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's
2: full of shit. It's just like what she's talking about. The only thing I remember is that they mentioned um a laxative in it, That they, and that was the only thing that I took away from... The whole term wow. was that the teacher said, oh, who knows what this word means? And then no one knew. And she went, oh, it means a laxative. It means it's like makes you take a shit. <laughs> and then oh, the whole yeah. class was like, ha, 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 that's amazing. But see,
0: this <laughs> I, I, I've come across very few people who've loved Shakespeare from school. Mm. I met, name drop, uh, our future king, uh, Charles III. Mm. Uh, and he'd come to see... Uh, Julius Caesar at the RSC in 2012, and he was backstage glad-handing everybody, and he came to me, and he uh, said, and I said, oh, what I bet person? you hated it at
2: oh, Person. Uh, I said,
0: uh, yeah, he's mumbling. Yeah. I said, uh, I bet you hated it at school. He went. Mm, I did. I said, it's probably a bad teacher, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I said uh, I don't know if I told him then but I, I'd always thought this and I've written about it before if in a hundred years time two hundred years time somebody was going to try and explain what EastEnders was to a kid right and then they rather than do anything else they, they sit them down with a book and they goes alright Treacle uh, you're barred <laughs> uh, yeah. get out you <laughs> scumbag get out of there. yeah exactly so you go mm, okay god boy and then you go, well, okay, well, we're we'll just going to watch this, you know, just watch this. And then, then people will go, all right, Tregel, what's your, your bar, get him up. And you go, oh, mm. oh yeah, they're completely good. engaged. Now, it might not be those kids understand the language, but they understand the sentiment of get the hell out of here. Mm. Kids might not understand the language of Romeo and Juliet, but they understand the language of love. Mm. You know, Gallop-a-Pace, you fiery-footed steeds. Like she, You can tell she's impatient. Mm. You know, there's something about the seeing of things that supersedes the intellect, that get bypasses the intellect. You see another human being going through something, you get it. It's the same with music. It's like, I don't like this particular kind of music. Go and see somebody playing it live. Yeah, yeah. You change your yeah. mind a little bit, Yeah, if not a lot, because you suddenly go and you feel it. You feel it and you see it. it takes. It's a human interaction, especially art, performance mm-hmm. art. So Shakespeare, I would always say, should be seen first, mm. hopefully in the same room, possibly. If it can't be, then at least get people in who can speak it so that you get it. Um, and then when they do get up to interact, uh, the kids get get them up to interact, actually, with it. Um, this is a great book that's just coming out now um, that, the, uh, that, that uh, the Shakespeare Schools Foundation is, is releasing with sort of games, sort of Shakespeare games for kids. And it's brilliant because you end up doing a bit of Iambic pentameter which is just the way we speak, mm. I'm going down the shops to get some milk. And we speak like that all the time. I need to get the bus and get on home. You know, these things, we, we speak in that rhythm. That's why it's such a natural rhythm. Um, using words like thee and thou is just like the French use, you know, vous and tu. Um, it's formal or plural and it's, you know, it's, it's personal. And, and and you can easily explain that to kids and then get them to do sort of things with each other or you know talk about different phrases that shakespeare might use that we now use today you know a woman killed with kindness the milk of human kindness there, there there's all sorts of phrases at, and colloquialisms that are part of our language that are already shakespeare mm. and uh and and, it, and what is brilliant is to get them to feel normal about it before you get them to go, what are these hieroglyphs? Mm. What are these hieroglyphs that I can't understand on the page? Oh, I've got to have a dictionary every time I look at it. See it first, feel it, and then get them to get up and do bits of it so that they can feel what that feels like. You know yeah. like That Shylock thing with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally.
2: I remember that with um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Yeah. It, we literally just sat with them and a dictionary, or like a translator, essentially, because it's a completely different language, and just went through. It was so it's
0: just depressing <laughs>
1: it loses its energy because you're yeah. having to do that aren't you that so it totally it yeah. loses its, its yeah
0: Yeah. And do you ever think that the makers of EastEnders you know if they had you know they'd be spinning in their graves if they ever knew that in hundreds of years time that's how people were going to be encountering their show mm. yeah. same way I think Shakespeare would be going what Mm. Yeah, you're doing it where? I mean, I'm flattered that you're doing it at Cambridge and Oxford, and you're you've got all these academic studies coming out. But basically, you were meant to laugh at this character and boo this character. Yeah, Yeah. I've written entertainment. That's why everybody could enjoy it. Those who were intellectual, you know, er and erudite, and wanted to have that stroke, you know. And there were people who just wanted to see blood and guts, and oh my God, he's going to beat his mother up, and oh my God, his uncle married his his his. Mom, oh my God! What are these was he do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's a ghost. Oh gosh! You know, that's how it should be hitting us. You know, Othello yeah. and and the should be the same. Like, you break it down to all the racial epithets and stereotypes that are in it. You watch that show, you your heart breaks for Othello. You don't think of him as being a fool. You can do that on the page and break it down and go, yeah. Well, he should have known by the no because they call him honest. Iago and the audience laugh. You don't know that mm-hmm. if you haven't seen the show. You don't know that. All you know is what Iago said that he's going to do. And then you think, well, everybody, it should be obvious. No, it's not. Why do they call him honest Iago? It's because he always appears to be honest. And we laugh because we've seen him with his mask off. Mm. But that only works if that Iago is good, of course. But it only works if you see it. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, of course, academics can dismiss all sorts of plays by sitting there, you know, picking it apart. That's not how they're meant to be seen. It's not how Mm. they're meant to be received
1: yeah well Patterson we could literally talk to you all day I
0: think we have yeah we? I have yeah, well, yeah, certainly I have yeah no
1: it's been it's been so fantastic there's one last thing I wanted to ask you is about and I think it's to do with obviously like encountering this book and your writing process and your performing and acting is that would it be fair to say that you are a curious person you've always been a curious person
0: yeah uh, curious and opinionated <laughs> <laughs> and, and and desperate to figure sh- stuff out you know yeah like I feel like wrote this the other day in the thing, um, that artists create work to, in order to understand the world Mm. and also for the world to understand them. Mm. So there's a degree of self-revelation in all art, I think, but there's also a degree of search and curiosity in all good art, like I'm investigating something, I'm not telling you. What it is. I don't know, but I'm enjoying this investigation. You're going to see me exposed whilst I do it. I think that's it. We're trying to figure out the world and we're trying to allow the world to figure us out at the same time.
2: Yeah, I love that.
1: Yeah. yeah. It was a great way to finish. Thank mm. you so much, Patterson. Thank Thanks, Peter. It's been uh, such a pleasure to see you. Thank you. You yeah. too.
0: In this fancy setup. <laughs> 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 Thank you for listening
2: to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.